So up to this point in the retreat, we've mostly been speaking in the Dharma talks about how to approach practice, how to go about it. Helpful attitudes, skillful understandings, like the understanding of renunciation, or mindfulness, or faith, and the role that they play in helping us to do this practice effectively. But tonight I want to take on a slightly different topic. So not so much about the how of meditation, but the why. (laughs) What are we doing here? Which can be a big question at this point in the retreat. Where is all of this leading? What's the point of it? What is the insight that goes on at the Insight Meditation Society? These are the last four lines of the Diamond Sutra, which is a very famous, uh, important core teaching from the Mahayana tradition. It says, thus shall you regard all this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. And these few lines really capture the essence of insight the essence of wisdom, that seeing deeply how everything that we experience is so evanescent, so ephemeral, so fleeting, like a bubble in a stream, like that flash of lightning or a shooting star. And wisdom doesn't come simply from accepting this intellectually. So we can hear these teachings and we can say to ourselves, yes, that makes sense. But that's not how we gain wisdom. Wisdom isn't a matter of a philosophy or a belief or an opinion or an idea. Wisdom comes from actually experiencing for ourselves in this moment that yes, this is the truth of how things are. And what we find when we look at our experience, when we look very carefully in this very particular way that we're training the mind to do here, through this lens of vipassana, what we call vipassana, which as Kamala mentioned this morning, means seeing things as they really are, seeing things differently from the way that we normally look at them. When we look at things in this way, then the truth tends to show itself in three different ways, or from three different points of view, three different perspectives. They're not really separate understandings, but when you look from different directions, they this one truth, the truth of how things are, can appear differently. In Pali, these three perspectives are called anicca, dukkha, and anatta. And together they're called the three universal characteristics of experience. They're universal because they apply to every moment of experience, every moment of everyone's experience. Ours, our next door neighbors, the squirrels, the birds. The first one of these, anicca, is usually translated as impermanence. And this refers to the ephemerality of life, the fleetingness of experience, everything changing, everything transient. The second one, dukkha, is often translated as suffering, which is really only part of the picture of dukkha. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. But a more uh, complete translation might be unsatisfactoriness, which is a bit of a mouthful, or insecurity, or vulnerability. The third one, anatta, 
often gets this really cryptic translation of no self or non-self. It's like, what does that mean? (laughs) But that one points to the impersonality of experience, the fact that it's not under our control. It's, uh, there's an emptiness to it, an emptiness of someone who's in charge, someone who's directing it. So through meditation, through Vipassana, we come to see these aspects of reality for ourselves directly, right there in our own experience. And seeing this, seeing these three universal characteristics is what we mean by insight, as an insight meditation. So in this specialized sense, insight doesn't refer to anything or everything that we might experience or realize in the course of our practice. And in fact, we usually realize all sorts of things in the course of our practice. We realize things about ourselves, about our past history, about our psychological conditioning, about other people, their history, their psychological conditioning, about human nature and life and the world in general. All of which can be very helpful, can be uh, really an aid for living a happier and more skillful life. But this isn't what we mean by insight in the sense of Vipassana insight. We generally do start off on the path with a lot of this kind of what we call psychological insight. And this can be really useful in our lives. I was remembering, um, I've just hit the 20th anniversary of coming here for my first retreat. Hard to believe. <laughs> but it, w- it was a two-week retreat. And I think they might still do this one. It's, so it's a week of... Um, mindfulness meditation and a week of loving-kindness meditation that you can do one half or you can do both, which is a great way to practice. But one of the big themes for me on that retreat was rehashing this unhealthy relationship, this very painful relationship that I had had several years earlier. And at the time, it surprised me that this came up with such force and such persistence because I really thought I had kind of processed that and put it to bed. But yet, there it was. We all know how that goes. You know, I'd sit down on the cushion or I'd be doing my walking and the memories would come and really strong feelings, unresolved anger, a lot of shame, a lot of grief, really difficult stuff. And it was really excruciating just to hang in there and try to be with all of that. I remember one time being in the yoga room, do, kind of doing some some mindful movement to try to get a little relief from what was going on and just being hit by this incredible wave of grief and being so overcome that I just collapsed on my yoga mat. I just couldn't even like get up into down dog, you know. But being with those stories, having that time to hang out with that that stuff that hadn't been resolved yet, uh, all the emotions, within the the quiet and uh, the stillness and the safe container that we have here was really helpful. It really helped me to resolve a lot, really helped me to heal a lot. And I left that retreat perhaps with not so much insight in in a technical sense, but really feeling a lot lighter, feeling a lot freer, and with a real sense of faith in the potential of this practice, that it really could be transformative. And all of us will need to do some amount of that kind of psychological work in the course of our path. Some of us will need to do a lot of that kind of psychological work in the course of the path, often at the beginning and then often at 
other intervals as we go along. We may think that we've kind of settled things, you know, we've done our psychological work, we've done our emotional healing, um, and then a few years down the line, guess what? <laughs> it crops up again. There's more to consider. So just taking the time to be with those old wounds, to be with those karmic knots that inevitably surface. It only makes sense that those things come up when we sit down in this quiet and the stillness. That's really useful time, time well spent. But if we're persistent in our practice, if we keep going, just keep putting one foot in front of the other, if we're patient with everything that comes up, then at some point we will move beyond our own personal dramas. We will move beyond our own very specific sources of suffering, the specific conditions of our lives, and begin to pick up on this bigger picture, the bigger picture of really the universal sources of suffering that affect us all equally. Seeing those three characteristics of anicca, dukkha, and anatta that are common to every moment of experience, the pleasant ones as much as the painful ones. So insight is the process by which we translate the Buddha's teachings from something that we've heard in a talk or read about in a book, something that we've you know, maybe chewed on, mulled over in the mind. Insight translates that from second-hand knowledge, intellectual knowledge, into first-hand knowledge, personal knowledge, something that we really know for ourselves because we've seen it directly, that this is how things are. And it's only through making this our own, it's only through taking possession of that wisdom, by really internalizing it, incorporating it into how we experience life, that those teachings can be transformative. Until we actually sit down on the cushion and do the practice, the Dharma can just only be a good idea. I've heard that Kamala's teacher, Manindra, once said, the Buddha's enlightenment solved his problem. Now you have to solve yours. <laughs> and my teacher, Upandita, he told me once, the, the teacher can stand at the chalkboard and solve the math problems all day long for you, show you how he solves them one day after another, you know, problem after problem. But until you can do the problem yourself, you, can't, you're, you, you don't have the knowledge, you don't have the wisdom. So we make our best effort. We really try here. We come, we follow the instructions as best we can, we follow the schedule as best we can, and lo and behold, at some point, things get a little bit easier, hopefully. The energy balances out maybe just a little bit, not such big swings between sleepiness and restlessness. The hindrances quiet down just a little bit. They're not screaming, you know, at full volume all the time. Uh, the wandering mind sometimes takes a little break. It's not quite so deafening. And at some point, we're able to remember to be continuously mindful for a little while. And I really do just mean a little while here. So I'm not talking about all day long or even all morning long or even all sitting long. I'm talking about maybe a few breaths or maybe just one breath or maybe just half a breath. That's really all it takes. This is why this works. Because we don't have to, to do it perfectly. That's the important thing to remember at this practice. We just need that magical breath when all the stars align and all the, the mental faculties all come into balance just for that few moments. And that's when we can get a taste of insight. And at first it's very unextraordinary, the first experiences of insight. Usually we don't even know they're happening because it's just simply this knowing, this knowing of what's actually happening. 
which has been hidden from view, it's been obscured, like clouds in front of the moon, by all of our ideas about what's happening, all of our stories about what's happening, all of our interpretations of what's happening. Those things have all been, been hiding what's actually happening. I've been using this uh, not very elegant analogy of ramen noodles to illustrate this point <laughs> recently. So ramen noodles, we all know and love them. If you've ever been to college, you're familiar with ramen noodles. Um, so when we first open them up, they're this very hard block of stuff, right? You could whack them on the table. Um, you can see that it's, it's made up of lots of different strands. You can see there's different strands woven in there, but it would be impossible to just pull one out because they're all stuck together. But then you pour in the boiling water and magic happens and the noodles all soften up and they all separate out. And then you can reach in if you wanted and just pull out one single noodle and look at it, one strand. And our initial entry into insight is a lot like this. It's the point at which those different strands of experience start to soften up, loosen up, separate out so that we can see them, each one for what it is. So we can start to see that that sensation in the body is one thing. It's a physical experience. And the feeling of pain in the mind is a, is a different thing. That's a mental experience. We start to be able to tease those out and see, oh, okay, that is that, and that is that. Or we can see that the thought passing through the mind is one thing. And the mood or the emotion that accompanies it is a different thing. Two different experiences. They're related. They come together. It's not that they're unrelated, but they're separate experiences. And some of you have probably been starting to experience this in your practice, maybe without realizing it. So maybe we're sitting and we're feeling the breath in, out, in, out. And if we use that labeling or noting technique, we might be putting that little soft mental note on it, in, out, or rising, falling, whatever it is that, whatever tool it is that we use. And at some point, it just becomes really clear oh, that that feeling of the movement of the breath is one thing, and that mental note pointing to it is something else. Again, they're related, but we can really see each of those strands separately for what it is. Or maybe we're out doing our walking meditation, uh, wherever we do our walking meditation, and as often happens, that internal narrator is running its monologue. <laughs> the yogi kosel and now she's lifting her foot and she's moving it and there's air and there's pressure and you know you know that guy <laughs> and at some point you know we're noting we're feeling them stepping we're noticing the thinking and at some point it really just becomes clear that the sensations of the moving of the walking are one thing and that narrator that voice in the head is something else it's a different strand of experience so we start to be able to notice in this way the different strands of experience. And then that becomes our practice. That becomes the practice that we're doing. Noticing moment by moment the different strands, different elements of experience as they fly by, as they flow by. Until at some point the mind shifts again and starts to take in the bigger picture of what's going on. It's, this is like adjusting the focus on a camera or on a telescope or a microscope, focusing the lens, so zooming out. It's like we've been, we get really focused in on you know, the specific details of the moment, the sensations of the walking, the sensations of the breath, the particular thoughts going through the head. We get really focused on, in on these things, but at some point, 
the mind zooms out and we get the bigger picture. And we start to see the three universal characteristics, the qualities of the moment that are, that are there in every moment, regardless of what the specific experience might be. So we start to see at that point that whatever the experiences that we're happen- having, whether it's physical or mental, whatever it might be, it is breathtakingly impermanent. It is fleeting. It is disappearing. It is changing. Or we start to see that whatever experience we're having is not leaving any real lasting impression. We have an experience, it changes, it disappears, and there's really nothing left of it. It's gone. Once it's gone, it's gone. And we start to see, especially, how out of control this whole process is. We're not out of control. It's lawful, but that we are not controlling it. We're not calling up this particular mix of, of pain and obsessive thoughts and difficult emotions. That's not what we ordered from the menu today. It just comes. So all of these deeper insights become accessible only when we can actually connect with the reality of the moment. This is why mindfulness is the key. We have to actually be there in the present moment, picking up on the various strands of what's actually happening in order to get the bigger picture, the bigger message. For many of us, the first of these universal characteristics that will become apparent is impermanence. So, of course, there's the ordinary, just everyday impermanence that we're all familiar with. Things change, the seasons pass, the years pass, we get older, um, the planet gets warmer, (laughs) people that we know get older and sick and die. All of us know, all of us know this, even young children, you know, we know this right away. This is kind of one of the big first hard lessons of life that we all have to face, you know, in our early years. My daughter, just before uh, I came up here, um, her favorite headband broke. It was a real tragedy. <laughs> it was one of these ones that's kind of like hard plastic and it snapped, so there's just no way to repair it. And she was just so distraught, you know, even uh, at, at her tender years early in life, you know, she knows. I think she was more upset about the fact that it had broken than the actual loss of the object. Uh, she said to me, it was so special and I'll never have another one that's the same, you know. We, we get this very early in life. So there's no need to meditate <laughs> to learn about this, this aspect of impermanence, this everyday level of impermanence. It's obvious. All we have to do is just live. And yet, there can still be a lot of denial around even just this very obvious kind of impermanence. Even though we know it's going to happen to us, there can still be the feeling of, oh, that stuff happens to other people. So the Buddha did encourage us to really confront ordinary impermanence in a very direct way through skillful reflection as a way of paving the path for meditation, for effective meditation. So he encourages us to reflect on aging, our own and other people's, to reflect on illness, to reflect on death, to really take in these hard truths of impermanence. There's a great... uh, poem I want to share. Let's see. This is an enlightenment poem from a woman who lived in the time of the Buddha named Ambapali. And she was one of, one of the Buddha's most famous female lay disciples. It was said that she was found as an infant at the foot of a mango tree in the royal grove. And that she had skin as golden and as succulent as the flesh of a ripe mango. 
<laughs> and when she grew up, she was so ravishingly beautiful and alluring that all of kind of the local kings and princes and warlords were all starting to fight amongst themselves to gain possession of her. And it was finally decided that the only solution to the situation was to set her up as an independent courtesan, to give her her own establishment so that she could divide her time equally <laughs> among all of her suitors. <laughs> Which actually made her one of, you know, an extremely rare woman, an independent woman who was actually very wealthy and quite influential in the region. So she was in somewhat of a unique position. And she also became an important disciple of the Buddha and a big supporter of the Sangha. She was very wealthy and she would give places for the monks to stay and donate lots of food and robes and, and all of the things that they needed. It's said that when the Buddha would go with a group of his monks to, to her house to accept a meal, he would warn his monks uh, in especially strong terms to guard their senses, lest they become <laughs> intoxicated by Ambapali's incredible beauty. But things changed. Time passed. She grew older. She was no longer sought after by kings and princes. And she decided to ordain and become a nun. And the observation of her own aging process and the, the deliberate reflection on the process of her aging and what it was like, seeing how that magnificent, magnificent beauty that she had possessed faded over time, uh, that became an important part of her practice and really helped her along the way. And in time, she became one of the Arahants. And this is a, just a little bit from her Enlightenment poem. My hair was black and curly, the color of bees. Now that I am old, it is like the hemp of trees. This is the teaching of one who speaks truth. My eyebrows were crescents, painted well. Now they droop and are wrinkled as well. This is the teaching of one who speaks truth. My eyes flash like jewels, long and black. Now they don't make anyone look back. This is the teaching of one who speaks truth. This is how my body was. Now it is dilapidated, a place of pain, like an old house with the plaster falling off. This is the teaching of one who speaks truth. And it goes on and on like this. She goes, she goes through pretty much every feature of her body in excruciating detail. <laughs> and um, a friend of mine who, who knows Polly, who's a bit of a Polly scholar, tells me that even in Polly, the scans is humorous. You know, it's, it's meant to, to be funny in a way. But it's, it's funny in a way because it's true, right? <laughs> this is the, the teaching of one who speaks truth. This is what happens to the body if we have the good fortune to live into old age. So understanding and acceptance of change and of loss on just an ordinary level in and of itself is therapeutic and is helpful on the path. But through insight, we can come to an understanding of impermanence that goes beyond just what's obvious on an everyday level. And we don't need to go looking for this understanding of, of impermanence because it will present itself when the time is right, when the conditions are right. So when we start to meditate, we mostly just catch the middles of things. And you may have noticed this in your practice, that we don't really catch that neck pain or that back pain or that knee pain until it's really quite present, quite strong. And then we would definitely see it then. <laughs> but we probably don't see at first it, it bubbling up and beginning to take hold. 
And we may not see the end of it either. So we may be noticing that pain and uh, before it disappears, something else catches our attention, maybe an obsessive thought or maybe a feeling of anger or whatever it may be. So we tend at first to just see the middles of experiences, little bits of things. But with practice, our concentration builds, our mindfulness builds, and we start to be able to stay with an experience longer. Just naturally, the attention will stay with it longer. And we start to be able to see the endings of things. So maybe we catch that back pain once it's gotten strong enough to catch our attention, but then we might sustain the intention there. We might be able to see it uh, fall off, maybe just for a moment, or we might be able to see it change. With more practice, with more continuity of awareness, more momentum to our mindfulness, then eventually we start to be able to catch things as they arise. We start to see the, the first glimmerings of discomfort forming. We start to see the thoughts bubbling up out of the mind. And this is the point at which we start to really get in a direct way the truth of impermanence. The impermanence that goes beyond just the ordinary level. The experience start, experiences start to seem like a parade passing by. You know, this one comes, it does its thing and it goes. And then this one comes and does its thing and it goes. And there's kind of this procession of experiences uh, marching through our awareness. I remember taking my daughter some years ago to a uh, parade on President's Day in uh, Alexandria, which is one of the oldest uh, settlements in the, uh, the Mid-Atlantic around the D.C. area where I live, and they have a big President's Day parade. It's right near Mount Vernon. It's a big deal. <laughs> so we went down one year to watch the parade for the first time, and we got a good spot right near the VIP stand where all the bigwigs sit, and, um, but it was very, very crowded, so there were a lot of people all around us. We had a good view, but there were a lot of people all around us, so we couldn't really see too much far down the street in either way. You know, we couldn't really see things coming, and then after things had passed us, we couldn't really see them too much further down the road. And all sorts of things came by. There were things that uh, my daughter really loved. Uh, she really loved the dance troops, like the, the Andean dancers, the ethnic dancers that come by in these great costumes and do these just fabulous dance routines. She loved that. And uh, she loved the Shriners cars, you know, the, the little teeny cars with the guys with the hat. That was a big hit. Um, then there were a lot of things that were just kind of like, they were nice, but not that exciting, you know, like one high school band after another. <laughs> they, were, they were okay, they're nice, but not as exciting as the Shriners. And then there's some things that we definitely, she definitely didn't like. So that there, was a one, there was one point when a bunch of um, uh, Revolutionary War reenactors came by with a live cannon. And they fired off the live cannon in the middle of the street in front of the VIP stand. And that did not go over so well. That one was not a big hit with my daughter. But whatever it was that was coming by, whether it was good or bad or indifferent, we were watching the parade. You know, each group came by, they did their thing for the VIPs, and then they went on their way. And then there was the next one. We couldn't make the things that we liked stay longer. We couldn't make the things that we didn't like leave faster. Everything was going at its own pace, doing its own thing, and we were just spectators. So when we start to see this deeper level of impermanence, experience can begin to seem this way. We, get, we start to get that life is really just a parade, a parade of one experience after another. The sensations, the thoughts, the feelings, they all come down the parade route, <laughs> do their thing for the VIP stand, and then they move on. 
And it's just pointless trying to hang on to them. We can't make the ones that we like stay longer. We can't make the ones that we don't like go faster. They're doing their thing. So the more that we get this, the more we can just relax into it. Relax and watch the parade. Stop struggling so much. Because we realize that they're all just following their impermanent nature anyway. One teacher said that true wisdom lies not in letting go, but in realizing that everything is going anyway. And seeing this even for just the briefest moment can be incredibly powerful. It's like a a puncture in a balloon. It may be just the tiniest hole, but it's never really going to hold air again. Once we've really seen impermanence on that level, there's a way in which we can never really believe in the solidity of all of this again. It doesn't have to be hours and hours in this state. Even just a glimpse is really powerful. But even beyond this level of impermanence, there's still more. There's a deeper level of seeing. So when we get to this point of seeing the parade, seeing the beginnings, the middles, the endings, we start to get impermanence to a deeper level. But we still have a sense of things having some definable duration. So everything's moving, everything's changing, but it's actually there for a little while. So the Shriners are there for a little while, the high school band's there for a little while, the Andean band's there for a little while. Things come, and then they're there, and then they leave. Research uh, into attention shows that for a healthy brain, the period of time that we can resolve is about half a second in ordinary life, just in the course of daily activities. So if something lasts at least a half a second, then our minds, our attention can pick up on it. If it's less than half a second, it tends to to fall under the noise floor, fall under the radar. We don't tend to, to notice it. But with practice, as mindfulness develops more momentum through the techniques that we're doing here, the brain can pick up on experiences more and more quickly. This is one of the effects of mindfulness practice on the brain that's been demonstrated. So for mindfulness meditators, even in the course of a nine-day retreat like this, the, the speed of attention may operate up to 10 times faster than ordinary levels. 10 times faster, that's a lot. So instead of catching things at half a second, we may catch things at a 20th of a second. That's a big difference. So we can actually get to a point where we're not seeing things start and then do their thing and then end. We're just only seeing endings. We're just only seeing this ending, this ending, this ending. We start to see that actually there's no duration to anything. There's nothing that's stable even for the briefest moment. It's all flying by. There's nothing but change. There's nothing but flux. It's like a parade that doesn't stop at the VIP stand. (laughs) Or like a high-speed train that's going by so fast that we can't even see the individual cars. And at that point, we really start to realize that there's absolutely nothing that can be held onto, regardless of our desires. There's no point in wanting to hold on to it because there's no way we possibly can. Everything is just going, going, going. Seeing at this, le- this level can lead to what's called disenchantment, <laughs> which is probably not what we came here for. <laughs> it's a little bit of a loaded term in English, but it's just that realization that there's nothing to be held on to and we're just unable to fool ourselves anymore, that it's possible to even hold on.
Which brings me to the second universal characteristic of experience, the characteristic of dukkha, which is often translated as suffering. So it's really difficult to pin down in English. Sometimes translation, um, there's one translator that likes to use stress for dukkha, which is kind of an interesting perspective on it. But it's this inability of any particular experience to give us a lasting sense of satisfaction or happiness. And as with impermanence, there's also an ordinary level of dukkha that we're all very familiar with. It's what the Buddha often referred to as old age, sickness, and death, which seems to have been his shorthand, or the compilers of the Pali Canon's shorthand for basically everything unpleasant that life dishes up for us. <laughs> old age, sickness, and death. This is the traditional formula that's found over and over and over again in the Pali Canon. It goes, birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, death is dukkha, Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are dukkha. Association with the unloved is dukkha. Separation from the loved is dukkha. Not getting what is wanted is dukkha. In short, the five aggregates of clinging are dukkha. Where the five aggregates of clinging means everything. (laughs) So again, we don't really need to meditate to get this level of understanding of dukkha. Even little kids know this. Things happen that we don't like. We lose the things that we do like. We go through, if we just go through life, then this is very apparent. And the, the usual translation for dukkha, that translation of suffering, actually fits this level of seeing dukkha pretty well. In Pali, this level of dukkha is referred to as dukkha dukkha, the suffering of pain that really obvious suffering in life. Getting the experiences that we don't want, not getting the experiences that we do want. This is dukkha dukkha. And it can be helpful to to notice it that way. You might notice it that way in your practice. It might help to lighten things up a little bit. Ah, dukkha dukkha, again. And the Buddha also really encourages us to look at this, again, as an as a antidote for the denial of our culture, especially in modern Western culture, especially here in America, where we're just bombarded by these messages that we ought to be able to make it all okay, right? If we just use the right face cream or take the right pills, you know, or go to the right school, whatever it is, then we ought to be able to make it all work out okay. We ought to be able to avoid pain and live in a state of just unremitting joy and happiness. But if we pay attention, we see this is not how things work. No matter how carefully we adjust our posture, no matter how carefully we try to tweak our sleep schedule, our eating schedule, no matter how uh, diligently we follow the instructions, we just can't get everything to work out right. We just can't manage to always feel good. Can't always get what you want. (laughs) The Rolling Stones had it down. So can we practice opening to this a little bit more, accepting this a little bit more, that this is part of life, the vicissitudes of life, that along with all the good stuff, there's going to be the bad stuff too. Can we practice letting go of our unrealistic expectations that it ought to be possible to make everything all right? Or even that it ought to be able to, it ought to be possible to make this particular thing right, this one little problem that I've got in front of me right now. Can we let go of the attachment to the idea that there must be a way to fix it? 
A certain amount of dukkha, dukkha is just part of life. But just as with impermanence, through our meditation, through the power of mindfulness, through this lens of vipassana, we begin to see aspects of dukkha that are not so obvious at first glance. Aspects that don't fit so well into that definition of suffering and what it tends to mean for us in English. So we start to see what might be better called unsatisfactoriness or vulnerability or insecurity. We start to see that just because of the truth of impermanence, because that parade is constantly passing us by and we can't make it stop, that there's simply no way to get lasting satisfaction from any experience. We may have wonderful moments of experience. It's not that there's not pleasure in life. It's not that there's not joy in life. We can have moments of great joy, great tranquility, great love. And they're great when they're happening. But then what happens to them? They end. (laughs) So even the good experiences aren't really good because they don't last. They don't stay. They don't leave any trace of satisfaction behind them. This aspect of dukkha is called viparinama dukkha, which could be translated as the pain of change, the pain of insecurity. We can think of it as the, the pain of pleasure, the pain of pleasant experience. And this one can be hard to see. It can be hard to see, and even when we've seen it, it can be hard to accept. It's a difficult truth to take in. That even within the midst of the most wonderful experiences, there's still this kind of suffering or stress or dissatisfaction. Even as we're enjoying ourselves, the experience is evolving, it's changing. And we never really know how it will evolve. It may continue to be good for some time, it may even get better, or it may not. It may go away, it may disappear. But over time, certainly it's going to change, and we never know how. So there's this inherent insecurity, this inherent vulnerability And we usually have a period when we feel this very keenly, different times in our lives. Um, I often come back to my children. That's my main practice, uh, place of practice these days. But so my son has just turned four and he's starting to not be little anymore. (laughs) He's starting to not be my baby anymore. He's still got enough of that babiness in him that he's really sweet to be with, you know, all his little cute ways of expressing himself. And he's still got that radiant smile and... Uh, You know, he's very charming and adorable, but he's also getting bigger. It's like I can see him disappearing. Even as I'm there with him and I'm playing with him and I'm laughing with him and we're having a great time, it's almost like I can see him disappearing just day by day, week by week, moment by moment sometimes. So there's this kind of poignancy to the, the good times that we have together because they're going. A friend of mine who has children that are just a little bit older than mine, he described as he was watching his youngest one uh, grow out of that phase of kind of early childhood, he said sometimes he felt like he was watching his last sunset. You know, we can feel that way when we, you know, we've got something and it's wonderful in the moment, but we know, we know it's not going to last. This is Viparinama Dukkha, the pain of change. And we see this in our practice here, in little ways, in smaller ways. So if we're sitting and if there's some comfort physically or comfort mentally, 
we will notice, usually at this point in the retreat, very quickly how we latch on to that. <laughs> how the heart just kind of starts forming its defenses around it. Trying to hang on. What can I do to keep it going, you know, or is it going to go? Um, you've some, many of you have heard that saying that we have, that there's nothing like a good sitting to ruin your practice. <laughs> because once we've had that good sitting, you know, for a long time afterwards, <laughs> sometimes for years afterwards, our practice can become let's be honest, about trying to get back to that state, trying to recreate it. And we do the same thing in our lives. Listening to all those cultural messages about how we ought to be able to hang on. We ought to be able to keep it. And if we can't, there's something wrong with us, right? There's a story uh, from the suttas that kind of illustrates the difference between Dukkha Dukkha and the Suiparinama Dukkha. This is the story about um, a very handsome young man who was the son of a goldsmith and lived in one of the main cities in northern India. And he had grown up in his father's workshop, as people did in those days, learning the family business, spending a lot of time around precious metals and gems and, and learning how to, wor- to work with them. And one day he was out in the streets running errands for his father and he happened to see the Venerable Sariputta on his alms round. Venerable Sariputta being the the Buddha's right-hand man, said to be second only to the Buddha in wisdom and understanding. And he was so struck by the nobility and the radiance of the Venerable Sariputta's presence that he just kind of instinctively followed after him, trailed after him for a while and engaged him in talk. And... Day after day, he started to seek out the Venerable Sariputta to, to follow him along, to talk to him about the Dhamma. And eventually, we, he was able to convince his father to let him leave the workshop and renounce household life and become a monk under the Venerable Sariputta's guidance. So Sariputta reflected that this new monk was very young and very handsome and very used to being around beautiful things and was probably very inclined towards craving for sense pleasure and attachment to beauty. So he instructed him to practice uh, a Subha Bhavana, which is a type of meditation practice that focuses on the repulsiveness of the body, uh, often by meditating on decaying corpses in the cemetery. Sariputta thought that this would be a good way to curb this young monk's sensual tendencies. And the young monk was very enthusiastic. He had a lot of faith. He was very inspired by his teacher. So he took up the practice very diligently and followed the instructions as best he could. But four months came and went, and he hadn't made any progress in his practice. Which surprised Sariputta, because he figured that, hey, this would be just the thing that this young monk needed. But eventually he had to admit that something wasn't working. So he brought the young monk to visit the Buddha, who saw with his psychic power that this person had been a goldsmith for his last 500 existences. So he was very conditioned to be around beauty, very attuned to the qualities of gold. And the Buddha took a different approach with him. So using his supernormal powers, he created a radiant golden lotus flower, magical lotus flower, which he gave to the young monk, saying, Here, my son, take this flower. Find a quiet spot to sit and gaze at it and notice golden, golden, as you contemplate its color. 
The young monk was, of course, delighted with this new form of meditation compared to what (laughs) Sariputta had had him doing. And he gladly took the flower and sat down with it and was completely enthralled and fascinated by its beauty. So his mind became very concentrated and very still and very tranquil. Meanwhile, the Buddha was, through his supernormal powers, keeping tabs on how the monk was doing in his meditation. And when he saw that the monk was in the right frame of mind, very concentrated, very tranquil, then he caused the the magical golden lotus to begin to wither and fade. And one petal after another withered and fell to the ground. And without even really thinking about it too much, as the, the young monk watched this happening, he really got the truth of dukkha, that no matter how beautiful an experience, it's bound to change. So not just that flower, but really everything. He got the universal truth of dukkha. And very quickly, he became one of the arhats, a fully enlightened being. So this is Viparinama dukkha, the pain of change. If we continue to persevere in our practice, though, we eventually come up against an even deeper layer of dukkha. (laughs) Yes, there's more. (laughs) And this one is called Sankara dukkha. This is the most subtle level of dukkha, the most difficult to really open up to. And this could be translated as the oppression of existence, or perhaps the burden of experience. And we can think of this as just the constant agitation of having to be alive, of having these sense organs that are constantly bombarded by stimulation. And there's no way to turn them off. (laughs) We all know this by now. There's no place to go to get away from this body that we possess, to get away from this mind that we possess. We can't just decide, okay, I've had enough of this back pain. I'm going to turn off the feeling sense, sense. turn off the, close this feeling sense door for a little while, take a little break, you know, or we can't decide, oh, I've just had enough of this thinking stuff, it's driving me crazy, I'm just going to turn off the thinking mind for a little while, you know, and that's true for all of the senses. If they're there and they're working, then they are open to stimulation and they will be, they will take in things. We can negotiate a little bit, you know, we can try to change conditions, we can try to alter our experience, We can try to go to sleep. We can try to escape into daydreams. Um, We can put various substances into our body to try to numb things a little bit. But in the end, there's no escape from just experience itself, be it good, bad, or indifferent. This is Sankara Dukkha, the oppression of experience. And it may be quite some time before we can really connect with this level. It's very difficult to open to very difficult to accept, and it's said to be very close to awakening. So through insight, we come to understand impermanence on deeper and deeper deeper levels, more subtle levels. We come to understand dukkha, various forms of suffering on deeper and deeper levels, more subtle levels. And we may also come to see anatta, this thing that's translated as no self or non-self, Emptiness is often used in the Mahayana tradition. Impersonality. All of this sounds kind of heady. But it's really just simply the understanding that there's not any puppet master orchestrating the show. There's no one running the show. There's no great and powerful Oz that's making everything happen. 
either inside of us or outside of us. There's no little mini me somewhere embedded within here that's calling all the shots. Some of you may remember seeing the movie Men in Black. Has anybody seen that one? (laughs) It's been a lot of years now since it came out, but I remember seeing it in the theaters when it came out, um, I think around the time that I started practicing. And the the first movie, the original one, opens up with the scene of this very kind of uh, gracious, uh, polite, uh, elderly Italian gentleman um, being pursued by hostile aliens that are trying to catch him for whatever reason. And the, the men in black are this kind of elite squad of agents that are supposed to police uh, alien visitors to our planet and keep them under control. So they're trying to rescue the, the elderly gentleman from these aliens. But by the time they get to him, the aliens have uh, shot him with their ray guns or whatever they've done, and he's lying on the floor dying. At which point, the, the men in black, they lean over him and they flip a little switch on the side of his head and open up his whole face. <laughs> And we see that inside there's a little compartment with a little teeny little alien with lots of levers and buttons and knobs and things. <laughs> and this little teeny alien has been there, you know, embedded inside this compartment inside the head of the elderly Italian gentleman running the show, you know. And I thought this was just such a great Dharma image, <laughs> you know. <laughs> because mostly, you know, unless somebody points out to us that this isn't really how it is, we go through life with this idea, or if not consciously the idea, then at least the feeling, the sense, that somewhere, somewhere in here, somewhere, there's, there's something, some controlling faculty, some core, some essence to us that defines who we really are, that's orchestrating the show, or at the very least is experiencing everything, observing everything. We have that real felt sense that there's a core to us somewhere, if we don't examine that more carefully. But when we look closely through this lens of Vipassana, we start to see and we start to realize that really there's not. (laughs) There's nothing else going on. We start to see that there's just this flow of impermanent, unsatisfying experiences. Moments of seeing, moments of hearing, moments of tasting, moments of smelling, moments of touching, and moments of cognizing. Moment after moment after moment and that that's really all there is that's happening. If we look in our experience, we can't find anything else there. Everything else is an idea. Everything else is a story. This whole story that we have about ourselves that we make up based on our experiences. But really there isn't any core to our being within all of that. That's what we are. We are that changing flow of experience We are that changing flow of consciousness. And we don't have to be on retreat here very long before we get this, even if this is just our first retreat. As I was saying before, we see very quickly, you know, pain rises in the body. Why? Did we order it? (laughs) Did we orchestrate it? Did we ask for it? No, it just comes due to causes and conditions, not due to anybody running the show. Those obsessive thoughts come. Did we order those? They arise due to causes and conditions. Things come together and they appear in the mind. It's all impersonal. And it's not that we don't have any influence over what goes on. We have some influence. That faculty of intention or will can be very powerful, both for good and for bad. But it doesn't control. It's just one piece of the picture of this flowing stream of experience. 
I remember very, very vividly the first time that I saw this on retreat. It was on my first three-month retreat that I did here, and I was sitting right down over there somewhere. (laughs) And I was just sitting there just during, you know, one of the sittings, one of the regular sittings. I'm pretty sure it was the 11.30 sit. And I saw a thought arise in the mind, which I'd been seeing for a while. I'd been seeing thoughts come and go. The mind was still enough that I could kind of observe the thinking process. But this one thought came and I saw it arise. I saw it run its course and I saw it end. And it just struck me for a reason that is mysterious. You know, we really can't say why insight arises when it does, but it just struck me. I didn't do that. (laughs) I didn't do that. I didn't make that happen. That thought is not me. It did not come from me. It arose for whatever reasons. It did its thing and it passed. And this was just, again, one of these moments, but revolutionary. Just that one moment of seeing. It's not me. Thinking is not me. Thinking is not who I am. So through this insight into anatta, or non-self, we see this changing parade of experience is impersonal. Impersonal. It's empty of any central core or being managing it. So these are the three universal characteristics that are what we call insight here that we see in the course of the practice and that we will see in the course of the practice. And they may at times be exhilarating. It can be really exciting and liberating and freeing to see these. At times it may be horrifying. (laughs) It may just be so depressing and such a downer (laughs) to see these at times. We like to use a metaphor here um, for for the different perspectives that we can have on insight. So sometimes it can be really um, bring a lot of lightness, feel like a great sense of relief, like we set down a great burden when we have a moment of insight. Sometimes it might seem very depressing, very oppressive, difficult to take, difficult to accept. So it's like a sky driver that when, when they first jump out of the plane, you know, they've got their pack, they've been practicing, they're prepared, they can just kind of enjoy that exhilaration of feeling the wind and feeling the motion and being up high and having that great view. So that's kind of like those times in practice when we get this just wonderful boost of exhilaration and freedom from seeing insight. But then at some point, the skydiver realizes that they forgot their backpack with the parachute (laughs) and panic sets in. Oh no, I'm going to die. It's the end of the world. (laughs) There's no escape. And at times that can be the attitude that we have towards insight. It can go in that direction too. But if we keep on with the practice, again, if we just keep going, then in time, more equanimity develops. It's like the skydiver realizing that, okay, I don't have my pack, but there's also no ground. (laughs) There's nothing to hit. (laughs) So in time, we arrive at this place where we can see the truth of reality, which is that we're in this free fall, but we can also have the equanimity of knowing that it's okay. We can just fall and fall and fall, and it's all right. In Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, uh, by Suzuki Roshi, which is a wonderful book, I highly recommend if you haven't read it. He says, that things change is the reason why you suffer in this world and become discouraged. But when you change your understanding and your way of living, then you can completely enjoy your life in every moment. The effinescence of things is the reason that you enjoy your life. Let's sit for a moment. Mm -hmm. 
Thus shall you regard all this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in the stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.